This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. I'm Jackie Cameron. Welcome to episode 75 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we pick up on how the pandemic is affecting the economy, with the strict lockdown wiping out at least 7 million jobs in South Africa, tipping many back into poverty and causing severe hardship for people from all walks of life. We interview the founder of the organization Gift of the Givers, Dr. Imtas Suleiman, who is also a medical doctor. He shares with us the details of how COVID-19 hasn't just affected the poor, he has been receiving appeals from people in managerial positions, and even professionals are struggling to survive. Also coming up in this program, Dr. Geraldine Timothy, public health medicines specialist at Discovery Health, busts some myths about face masks. First, to look at the news making headlines. A cumulative total of 611,450 confirmed COVID-19 cases in South Africa have been recorded, with 1,677 new cases identified. That's according to the government, which says that Gauteng has the highest number of cases at 33%, or a total of just under 207,000. KwaZulu-Natal has the next highest number of cases at just under 110,000. The country's coronavirus epidemic is on a downward curve with new infections, hospital admissions and the positivity rate all showing declines. This is according to the chairman of the Ministerial Advisory Committee, Salim Abdul Karim, who says that while new cases doubled every two days in March, that rate has now slowed to doubling in as many as 79 days. Hospital admissions in all of South Africa's nine provinces have declined and the testing positivity rate now averages about 13% from a peak of 27% in the week ended July the 23rd. Professor Karim says, We are over the plateau. Is the worst over? That's not entirely answered at this point. We have to remain vigilant because of the possibility of a second surge. While some countries in Europe used a combination of lockdowns and testing regimes to bring down the infection rate, numbers are rising again now that normal life has resumed. Earlier this month, South Africa relaxed a number of restrictions, including allowing bars to reopen for the first time since March. Karim says that the fall in the number of cases being detected means that the country will switch to surveillance mode and change its testing strategy to a district model while adding antibody testing to measure the full extent of the outbreak. Just under 24 million people have tested positive for COVID-19 and almost 814,000 people have died of the disease. South Africa is number five on the list of countries hardest hit by COVID-19. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre puts South Africa at number 13 in terms of deaths. You can contract COVID-19 twice. That's the finding from the University of Hong Kong, whose scientists used genomic sequence analysis to prove that someone was infected by two different strains of the novel coronavirus. The 33-year-old's second SARS-CoV-2 infection was detected via airport screening on his return to Hong Kong from Europe this month. Scientists say this is the first case showing that reinfection may occur within a few months. 
The information technology worker didn't develop any symptoms from his second infection, which might indicate that subsequent infections may be milder, the researchers said. Kwok Yong yoon and colleagues said that their findings suggest that SARS-CoV-2 may persist in humans. The findings also suggest that SARS-CoV-2 is reminiscent of the coronaviruses that cause the common cold and may continue to circulate, even if patients have acquired immunity via natural infection or via vaccination, they said. Thomas File, president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, says that it's inevitable that reinfections will occur. The question is, how long after the initial infection might that occur? Protection from reinfection will vary between people and may depend on the individual patient, their immune system, whether the patient developed symptoms to the first infection, and the nature of the second virus to which they've been exposed. Doctors know that if they look at the seasonal endemic coronaviruses, the amount of immunity can be as low as four, five or six months to maybe up to a year or two. The equivalent of 400 million jobs have been lost worldwide, 13 million in the US alone. That's according to business partner The Wall Street Journal, which says that global output is on track to fall 5% this year, far worse than during the financial crisis. It quotes the International Monetary Fund. The Wall Street Journal also says that evidence suggests lockdowns have been an overly blunt and economically costly tool. They are politically difficult to keep in place for long enough to stamp out the virus. The evidence also points to alternative strategies that could slow the spread of the epidemic at much less cost. The Wall Street Journal says that as cases flare up through the U.S., some experts are urging policymakers to pursue these more targeted restrictions and interventions rather than another crippling round of lockdowns. It quotes Harvard University economist James Stock, saying that we're on the cusp of an economic catastrophe. Stock, with Harvard epidemiologist Michael Minner and others, is modelling how to avoid a surge in deaths without a deeply damaging lockdown. The United Nations Development Programme said on Monday that South Africa's economy will take at least five years to recover from the impact of the coronavirus, with poverty and inequality expected to rise sharply this year. The UN says GDP is expected to decline by around 8% because of the pandemic and recover slowly through 2024. Extreme poverty levels could increase by as much as 66% this year, with 34% of middle-class households likely to fall into the vulnerable class. My business colleague Linda van Tilburg caught up with founder of The Gift of the Givers, Dr. Imta Suleiman, to hear how COVID-19 containment is impacting on people's lives. There are many charities and individuals in South Africa working to try to bring relief for those who have been hit hard by the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. It includes many sportsmen like Springbok Sia Kulisi and Brian Habana, who have tirelessly helped to deliver food parcels for people in need. In an interview with Biz News, the founder of Gift of Givers, Africa's largest humanitarian organization, Dr. Imtia Suleiman said that the food need in South Africa was the worst he had seen in the country since he started the organization in 1992. He told the story of children licking jam tins on waste dumps and digging for wild plants to eat in the rural parts of the Eastern Cape and calls from senior managers asking for help. There's a huge need for food. We are in existence for 28 years. You know, we were established in August 1992. In our 28-year history, we've never seen such a cry for food in this country. Every distribution we go to, 
old people, young children, middle-aged people all run for food, and they all dance for joy at the sight of our trucks coming. And when the trucks open up, people are ecstatic, and they tell you, we are very, very hungry. We haven't eaten for three days, five days, seven days. In one distribution, in a place called Pedi in the Eastern Cape, a mother with great dignity takes the food parcel, gives a big smile, and says, now talk to my children. They will tell you the taste of every plant in this area because that's all they've eaten for the last few months. We've had nothing. Only 20 food pass, 25 food parcels came a few months ago. That was all for the whole community to share. We went to other areas. They told us we had a thousand families. Only 10 food parcels came. And that story is repeated over and over again. You would find children, my staff, physically see children on dump sites scavenging for food. I mean, these are children looking for food. When the dump truck comes, they all excitedly run to the dump because they're very hungry. My staff also saw children licking a jam tin, a serrated jam tin, which could be infectious and could be dangerous in terms of cutting you. They saw the children eat from a peanut butter bottle and anything they could find. When we mentioned the story about children eating from grass and, and plants, people said that's all over the Eastern Cape. It's happening everywhere because people are very, very hungry. Our advantage is that we go deep into the rural areas. And the moment people see our trucks, our brand, our name is, is huge in South Africa, they start screaming from joy because they know something is coming. But inevitably, there's not enough to help everybody. And you have to do several loads. But the need is so huge that many people, you, you can't get to everybody. It takes time to take to the areas, it's distances, and to go back second and third time, it's, it's a long process. That's one spectrum of the hunger. Now let's take another spectrum that nobody will believe. You will get a senior manager from an airline company calling and start breaking down on the phone and say, I have a house, I have a car, I have children, I have all these things, but I can't pay back the money. I owe the bank money. But right now, that's not my problem because the bank has given us a holiday period where we don't have to pay straight away. What I do have a problem with is I don't have food in my house. How do I feed my children? A hotel manager, city manager of a hotel, a lady, calls, same story, starts crying on the phone. I have a house, I have a car, I have four children in private school. I'm taking them all out of school. They will stay at home this year. I can't pay the school fees. But right now, can you help me with a food pass for me and my children? Then the foreign nationals, they call and they say, we are nowhere. We're not South African. We don't have a South African identity. We can't go back to our countries. We can't work. We can't run our shops. We can't get access any assistance from anybody in the country because we are foreign nationals. Please come to my house. I have a two-year-old child and a five-year-old child. Can you feed them? Give them the food directly. Don't give us the food. Just give it to those children. They're hungry. You know, what wrong did they do? This story we hear every single day from different sectors in South African society. When the lockdown started, two weeks into the lockdown, in the second week of April, at any one point, there were almost 8,000 emails 
in our inbox, 90% of that requests for food. We have a, a toll-free line that normally is manageable by our switchboard in the different offices. During COVID the lockdown time, we had to put in four extra staff just to man the calls coming in. 90% of those calls were, were hungry. So you actually get even executives and middle managers asking you for help. Yes, you know why? It's obvious. The problem is it shows there's something very inherently wrong with the way people are financing their lives. If big companies are in difficulty in six weeks, you try to fathom out if these companies are in business for 30 years or 40 years, hasn't anybody prepared for a rainy day? And the warning has been going out for a long time from the Reserve Bank in South Africa to say that South Africans don't save. And one of the fallout of COVID-19 is the debt caught up on everybody. Nobody had reserves put away or savings or anything to help themselves for six weeks to eight weeks. Of course, this thing lasted more than almost four, four months. And people couldn't go to work. You had stories where, I mean, mining companies, the biggest industry in South Africa, put staff off and didn't pay them. And then you would find other companies that would say, okay, two weeks, half the team works. The other two weeks, the other half team works. So it means no salary for two weeks. Now, if you're living with a budget that's totally paid, your, your salary is totally committed towards expenses, if you don't get any for one week, you won't see this trouble. And, you know, you can buy things from the bank on account. You can buy things on your credit card till they get maxed. You can buy a car on higher purchase. And if you don't pay these things back straight away, it's okay. But you can't get food on account. And the problem is you have to go to the shop. If your credit card is maxed and you don't have cash in your hand, you're going to starve. And that's what's happening across the country. We've heard of so many places where people who are running just ordinary shops and working in big environments, everybody's cutting down. Well, what has happened also to other people who own you know, lots of properties? Suddenly, all the tenants can't pay. They can't pay the rental. And these people have to pay their bank. But worse than that is a lot of companies have canceled those offices. They say there's a new way of working. If you work from home using Zoom and Microsoft, you don't need to hire offices. So all those people that were supposedly very well off now landed with all this burden of paying the banks back for the rental for which they're not getting anymore. So it has been a major knock-on effect from middle management, middle-class people, small entrepreneurs, big companies. For example, some companies build huge, huge new premises and bought a whole lot of two to 300 trucks. Now, what happens? You have to pay this money back to the bank, but the economy is at a standstill. The country is closed. So there is no money for these trucks to go and do business, deliver goods. There's nothing to deliver. One company told me, I have 500 million rand in assets, but after this lockdown, I'm going to be bankrupt with 500 million rand of assets and no business. If you find rural children actually digging for wild plants to eat, why is the government aid not reaching them? All that is done is promises. You know, nobody has ever delivered to any areas. Every area we've been to, it's the same. We asked, did anybody else come here? No, nobody's been here before. You guys are the first. I said, but it's like four months later. Yes, in four months, nobody's been here. You are are the first ones to come. You are only a source of hope, you know, for hunger and water and medical care. It's repeated over and over again. People don't realize how much crisis and hunger there is specifically in the Eastern Cape. All these incidents I'm telling you about the hunger is in the Eastern Cape. But of course, 
the management and the airline manager, and that, that's nationally. That's not only related to the Eastern Cape. It's related to the big metros, to the big cities where people had big jobs. I mean, you speak to the banks, and they will tell you how many businesses are closing. They need to save businesses. They'll tell you how many people can't pay the bonds. Who would expect that in a medical crisis, the biggest guys in trouble will be medical professionals? Do you know how many doctors are in trouble? Because nobody's been coming to their practices. If you look at the private hospitals, all the consulting rooms are closed. There's no patients in the hospital. Everything is kept open for COVID-19. There's no elective surgery. The pathology labs have put off 40% of their staff. Their staff is on short time. You would think in a medical emergency, the medical guys would be the most busiest. Ophthalmologists have written to the medical aid societies to tell, telling them, please help us. Every month you've been paying a certain amount of money. Can you continue paying that amount of money to us, even though we haven't submitted any claims? And at some point, we'll try to make it up in the future. Otherwise, we're going to go bust. How many practices are in difficulty? How many doctors have to put up their staff, put them, send them off? Because patients are too scared to come for medical treatment. It's a huge knock-on effect across various professions in the country. This is Linda von Tolberg for Biz News. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. It's masks back on and social distancing at the world's largest nudist resort in France. The coastal town has restricted gatherings of more than 10 following an outbreak of COVID-19 at its local naturist resort, where over 100 people have tested positive for COVID-19. About 40,000 people visit the clothing-optional Capitage daily in the high season. Meanwhile, doctors at Tigerberg Hospital are leaving nothing to chance. They've come up with an ingenious solution to keep safe from the dangers of COVID-19. Medical staff at the largest hospital in the Western Cape are now able to make use of specially modified snorkel masks to prevent the risk of contracting the virus when administering medical assistance to critically ill patients. Speaking to me now is Dr. Geraldine Timothy, Public Health Medicines Specialist at Discovery. Dr. Timothy, tell us about masks. Do they really work to protect against COVID-19? So we've been quite strong and, and, and bold in putting out as much messaging as possible to ensure that everyone understands the need to wear masks. Um, you know, we, we've uh, had quite a market um, drive in terms of ensuring that we've used all of our forums. And, and it's not just around the need to wear the mask, but just to ensure that people are wearing it accurately and understand all the myths and um, confusion or anxieties around wearing masks as well. And what are the common myths that you're trying to bust? So there seems to be a lot of, you know, confusion around firstly the need or the wearing of masks over a long period of time. Um, there are people that are concerned that there's going to be this buildup that they speak to around carbon dioxide uh, poisoning, as they call it. Um, and I think that it's important people realize that wearing masks will not cause carbon dioxide um, intoxication in any form, that there'll always be adequate oxygen levels uh, despite the wearing of masks. I think that's been something that's been in and out of the news quite a lot recently, and we've tried to address that, especially around uh, people who have children that go to school and have to wear the mask for a long period of time. Parents are quite anxious around, is it dangerous or causing any um, lack of oxygen to them? And the answer is absolutely not. So ideally, we shouldn't wear 
one mask for more than one day. Um, ideally, I mean, if we had to just really be stringent, we would say everybody should at least at a minimum own two masks, um, subject to the fact that you're able to wash them every day so that you have a clean one. You know, it's important to understand that the mask is blocking um, particles from entering, so it, it serves as a filter. So if you don't wash that, you're actually just reintroducing the mask by touching it and putting it back on your face. So you have to change them. You can't wear the same one again. What about the homemade masks? Are they effective at all? Yes, so a a lot of the homemade masks are adequate. I think in South Africa particularly, you have some very low socioeconomic circumstances that can't afford to buy a mask. And in those instances, you know, just being able to make one with the materials that you have available will suffice, um, subject that they are adequate um, number of layers in the mask. So folding up a piece of cloth into three portions and ensuring that there are three layers of protection should suffice. When we look at doctors in hospitals, they wear these, uh, you know, sort of very special masks. At Tigerberg Hospital, they've actually come up with a, a reconfigured snorkel just to protect themselves. Is there a different type of mask we need to wear when we get go into hospitals or specific settings? The masks are varying in terms of the protection. The lay population or everyday person is expected to wear a cloth mask and that should suffice for the interactions that we have. If you're working in a hospital setting and especially if you're working particularly in um, uh, with COVID positive patients, those particular uh, healthcare personnel need to have a higher level of protection. So the highest level of protection is the N95 mask, which keeps out almost most particles. It's not uh, practical to provide that to the general population. So I think it just depends on the type of exposure that you are going into. So if you are a healthcare worker, yes, by all means, you need top of the brand or top of the market kind of protection. But as an everyday person, a cloth mask will suffice to protect you. Why is there a difference in the efficacy of masks? If you're treating patients with COVID positive, there's is more likely that the particles are able to spread onto you. So there's that, that ability to, you know, have a higher level of protection so that your exposures are higher. You know, going off to the supermarket is um, not necessarily likely that you're going to have an exposure, but sitting in a room with a whole lot of people that are positive, there's a much higher probability that those particles are, are in your uh, space. So the protection there needs to be much more um, firm as opposed to you going about your everyday activities where there's a possibility you could encounter someone who's positive, but less likely in a situation than in a healthcare setting. And do you need to practice social distancing if you are wearing a mask? Absolutely. I think that is one of the myths that we we regularly try to address. I think people sometimes feel that having a mask on makes you invincible to some extent, and it's not true. Um, you know, you can still touch surfaces um, that have been infected, and then you can still touch your face and touch your eyes. There's still, you know, your eyes that are um, an area that could introduce the particles. Um, they often say wear your masks with a um, protective from um, those visors, if possible, as well. So I think people need to, to understand that the um, mechanism around wearing a mask goes hand in hand with um, social distancing. So, you know, just not just keeping your 1.5 meter distance, but also no handshaking, um, you know, kind of interactions as well. So it's just one of many things you need to do to reduce the risks of contracting COVID-19. Yes, absolutely. There's also a lot of, um, um, how do I say, um, 
understanding by people that if you wear the visor without a mask, that it will suffice. And that's not true. So you should actually, your mask should be your first line of, of defense and the visor is an add-on as opposed to the other way around where you protect, use a, you know, a visor, but having your mouth expo- exposed can still let you um, spread um, germs out to everybody else. And you taking it in as well. That's very interesting because we see a lot of people wearing visors and not masks. So you say that's not good enough. No. So you, you first line should be the mask and your visor is an add-on. So the visor is an optional extra and it's an, an extra layer of protection, whereas um, a visor alone is actually not sufficient. So some people find it quite difficult to wear a mask, particularly if you're doing exercise or if you're working in a, a chef in a hot kitchen, it's quite hard to work with your mouth covered the whole time. What, what are the rules for people when they work and when they exercise when it comes to masks? So generally, I think the um, advice given out is to wear a mask as far as possible. There are some extreme situations which are reviewed individually, and those are people with claustrophobia or certain um, respiratory diseases where, you know, it actually is not conducive. But these are far and few. And I think in, in the majority of the cases, it should be you need to wear it come what may. I think that's the only way to actually have and uh, make a dent in terms of uh, preventing or not preventing, but slowing down the spread of COVID. So if we start making exceptions for someone in the kitchen, you know, we're going to start making exceptions across the board. And whilst it is uncomfortable, I think we need to find a mask that fits well enough just to ensure that we spread, we prevent the spread of uh, COVID particles. And is there a specific way to wear a mask? So there's definitely um, a lot of information around putting it on and putting it off, uh, sorry, taking it off. Um, and I think, you know, it's very important for people to realize that you can't be touching the front of your mask. And um, more particularly, it's to ensure that your mouth and your nose are covered. We find a lot of people walking around with masks just sitting over the the upper lip, which is not sufficient. Um, there's also these days a lot of people wearing it sitting at the bottom of your chin. So I think it's not just having a mask on your body, but ensuring that the right parts are covered. That's important. I think there's, uh, you know, the fitting of the mask is also important. A lot of people seem to think that it's having it loosely and sort of all falling all, you know, kind of all over the place is sufficient. Um, you know, moving it uh, around when you're talking to people, uh, you know, it's it sometimes difficult. People find it difficult expressing themselves with the mask on. I've seen it personally where people pull the mask off just to have a conversation. It's defeating the purpose of actually having a mask. So I think people need to understand that we're in a time and a stage in life where this is something we need to learn and adapt to. And the more people who do it properly, the more effective that this uh, strategy is going to be. And if you have somebody at home who has COVID-19, does everybody in the house, should they be wearing a mask? How, how do you advise people to work with masks when you have one person who's tested positive and the other people are in quarantine? So if you're in a household that allows the person who has COVID positive, who is found to be COVID positive, should preferably be isolating separate of the others. So their own room, using their own bathroom, um, if possible. So um, if that person is interacting with the rest of the household, then by all means, everybody needs to wear a mask. But if that person is able to stay in that room and the rest of the family is in the lounge together, I think that, you know, in that time that they're away from the positive person, it's, it's sufficient to actually be a little bit free. But if there's any interactions with the person, and within the household, then absolutely a mask is important to ensure that it doesn't spread to the rest of the household. (music) 
You've been listening to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron. Until next time.